The human spirit is unconquerable. We are individuals and we are sovereign, born with unlimited potential, gifted from our creator. Our mission is to break free from the systems that bind us. I volunteer as tribute. We strive for peace and prosperity and overcome all challenges, roadblocks, and obstacles. We are empowered because we think for ourselves and we act for ourselves. We are self-reliant and independent, but guided by the wisdom of those who share our values. What possible difference can I make? There is no government, no ruler, nor ideas that are able to stop us. We are driven to succeed because we seek political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom. It's all for nothing if you don't have freedom. This is Mike Corbell, and you are listening to The Invictus Mind. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Invictus Mind. This is your host, Mike Corbell. I'm happy to be here and happy for everyone who is listening. If this is your first time tuning into this podcast, I have got a treat for you. The essence of this program is to help people free themselves from the systems that bind us. On this show, we discuss self-improvement through learning and discovery. And though I like to talk a lot about liberty, I believe the best remedy for escaping the things that bind us is increasing our knowledge and our skill sets. To be invictus or unconquerable is to be the master of our fate and the captain of our souls. We must devote ourselves to seeking counsel from a myriad of sources. If this is your desire, then you have come to the right place. And if you find this program provides good value, then please subscribe to it and share it with three of your friends. You can find this show on any of your favorite platforms and including YouTube. All right. Today on the show with me is a man with an extensive resume, and I believe everyone listening to this conversation will walk away not only entertained, but a little bit more informed too. My guest is a corporate consultant and has worked for companies like BP, State Farm, and United Airlines. He is a founder of a company called the Hellstrom Group, an international organization that specializes in applied psychology and how it relates to improving sales negotiations, presentations, and marketing. He is the author of several books, has an online training program where he teaches people who are unaware of the power of the mind and the processes used subconsciously in decision-making. And while all that stuff is important, the most impressive thing I think I discovered about my guest is his years of experience while appearing on TV and in live performances in front of thousands of audience members on the Las Vegas Strip. He started his career as a type of magician, one that specializes in the art of mind reading. He is known what is called a mentalist. His name is Jonathan Pritchard. How are you doing today, Jonathan? Hey, hey, man. Glad to be here. And with an intro like that, I better be good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was reading your resume and I was uh, thinking to myself, when you meet somebody for their first time, and uh, as most men do, they ask, what do you do for a living? How do you answer that? I try not to <laughs> because weird, like, okay, that man, that's a huge question because in this context of a podcast, I'm here specifically to talk about what I do in a, in a personal context. If it's at a cocktail party or just a housewarming, whatever, I want to talk about my work as little as possible because I'm 99.9% sure that it's going to be more interesting than what that other person does. (laughs) And that doesn't help me understand how I can help them. So that is a very deep rabbit hole. It's like, oh yeah, I'm, I, (laughs) so I usually just say I'm a, I'm a corporate consultant. I just sales trainer. I go, oh, that must be interesting. And then that's it, <laughs> because the the whole mentalist background 
is very strange and there aren't that many of us out there. So there aren't that many opportunities. So I'll bring it around after I've been able to find out enough about them to understand kind of what they're all about, what, what lights them up as a person. And then I try to find ways for my background to fit in as a, a common point of interest. So I, long story short, I try to explain what I do as little as possible so that we've got enough room to talk about what they're doing. Well, that makes perfect sense. I think most people are interested in hearing their own voice and their own story rather than uh, trying to be impressed by what we tell each other. <laughs> right, right. But of course, I do want to get into uh, your corporate training background. But uh, since the cat is out of the bag, I need to start with uh, what a mentalist is. You know, I was thinking, I saw your YouTube clip and uh, I've been in Vegas several times in my life. I almost want to say that I saw one of your shows while I was there one time. Maybe, but uh, I, it wasn't glitz and glamour. It's kind of like one of those things of, yes, technically I, I've performed on the Vegas main stages at the Link and Caesars Properties and that kind of thing. The the days of of the grand showbiz, like Vegas is a horrible place to make your name. Mm. Once you're famous and you already have an audience to draw from, then you go to Vegas and then stop touring then your fans come to you. I got but you. if if you're on the up and coming and nobody knows the name Jonathan Pritchard, mm -hmm. nobody. So I have zero draw as an attraction. So it's it's not a place where you would want to go to stake your claim because every performer, every entertainer, oh, I go to Vegas, I hit it big. No, <laughs> you hit it big, you go to Vegas. <laughs> gotcha. So gotcha. yeah. So the a mentalist is a flavor of magician. And I, I try <laughs> I try not to get too in the weeds here, but a magician is a mag like a magician, somebody who does tricks with objects and things, make the tiger appear in the box, the woman's floating. Hey, look where the roses come from. A mentalist does tricks with information, things you okay. know, things you don't know, things I know, things I don't know, and presenting those in different ways. So it's, it's kind of demonstrations of predicting the future, influencing people's decisions, knowing the serial number on a dollar bill in your wallet, all sorts of just things you shouldn't be able to know. A mentalist knows them. And it's not, it's not supernatural. There's no uh, spirits or ghosts involved. It's all just applied psychology and information architecture which is being able to manage what the audience knows based off of their context and perception through my words, actions, staging, blocking, and scripting and everything to create their perception of what's going on that's not accurate. Mm -hmm. And then revealing the truth of the situation later and the gap between what they think is going on versus what's actually going on is the space for amazement. So the farther away from reality their understanding is, the greater the wow at the end. Because if the audience has a perfect perception of what all is going on, they're watching a documentary, mm -hmm. not, not a magic show. So in, in a way, it's kind of like a painter being able to perfectly represent a dragon or some sort of creature that doesn't exist they have to master the medium 
and understand perspective and how light and shadow works. So you have to master the real physical reality before you can create a fantasy one that is indistinguishable from reality. So mentalists study what things really look like, and then then you know what the the lie should be. So it's it's Olympic level difficulty communication skills is really the engine that drives the whole thing. So for years, I just saw business gurus saying, I understand the psychology of this. I understand the psychology of that. And it's based off of one one research thing that was done in the 70s. And that's what Mm -hmm. they're basing their whole career on. I'm like, no, no, I I've traveled all over the world and I don't care what culture you come from. When I do what I do, it's amazing. So I understand psychology better than these guys. I'm going to eat their lunch (laughs) and then expand it out into the corporate world. Okay. So I understand that uh, you saw your first magic show when you were a young lad. And uh, from that point in time, you you decided that that was what you wanted to do with your career. Exactly. It it was, uh, I was watching the Carson show. That's Mm -hmm. how old I am. And it was like, I was about five, six years old. And the magician was, was just super cool as Lance Burton who okay. I had the opportunity to meet years, years later. Um, so yeah, Lance Burton was just a smooth operator. It's like, man, that guy is so cool. And wait, that's a thing you can do. Okay. Well, yep. That's, that's what I'm doing with my life. And then I just would go to the library, read every single magic book there. And then my parents got me a magic kit one year for Christmas or birthday. And then, then it just took off and all the, beginning magic tricks all the beginning magic books will have card tricks coin tricks and here's some rubber band tricks you can do with stuff around the house and and then everyone has a mind reading tricks section and it was just those were the ones that seemed to get the biggest reactions i mean like Mm. think about a a 10 year old kid who can tell you things nobody should be able to know like that's some witchcraft level stuff. So I, I was just always, always attracted to what worked the best. And those were the mind reading tricks. So then that, that was kind of my niche. And then in college met my mentor who at the time had a million dollar challenge to people who thought they're genuinely psychic. He was like, all right, prove it. I'll give you a million bucks. Mm. And I handled applications for that, that challenge and that was kind of my master's class in mentalism in why people believe weird stuff. And then that set the trajectory for the rest of my life. When I think of mentalist, I think of Woody Harrelson's character in that uh, movie. Now you see us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there, there is a lot of overlap. There is a lot of Hollywood perspective there. But, you know, that's that's a good analogy. Were you the weird kid growing up or you're the one that everyone wanted to hang out with because you can do all this cool stuff? Yes. I, <laughs> like I would at there's one summer I got invited to a, a birthday party that was a pool party. And I thought it would be a good idea to bring my chains in a padlock, have people chain me up and then throw me in the deep end. Mm. Like, I don't know why I wasn't invited back to more parties. Like everybody, <laughs> everybody loved it. But yeah, it, I, I was very, very weird as a kid. And also I'm, I'm super shy like very, very introverted too. Hmm. It was just that the folks who would speak up and could ask for what they want seemed to get it. 
So being an introvert and preferring not to talk to people and just spend weeks and months alone by myself isn't really conducive to getting more business, to getting everything I want out of life. So I've learned how to be outgoing, but I'm still massively introverted. So I would much rather be on stage in front of 3,000 people because like, that's my office. I know that dynamic inside and out. I'm in super control there. I love it. Put me in a room of 20 people at a social cocktail party. Mm. And then I'm just like, ah, okay. <laughs> so what do you do? Business consultant. Right. <laughs> that's, right. That's it. Cause I don't, I don't want to be that guy that turns everything into a show. Mm-hmm. Like there's like, dude, could you ever just turn it off please? Like, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't want to make everything about me all the time. Sure, sure. And obviously, uh, like you said, that uh, learning about communication and influence and all those strategies uh, applying to psychology is a huge part of not only your performance, but uh, you know w- what you do as a consultant as well. Right. And that's where it came from was all the techniques I used on stage that I knew worked all over the world and then realized, oh, I've, I've used this in my own life because I grew up a super poor kid. Like, grew up in a single wide trailer on a dirt road. Mm-hmm. Like that's my background. And now I travel the world. Like there one doesn't necessarily lead to the other. Right. So I I had to rewire how I thought about business opportunity, making things happen. And and then I realized, oh, not everybody thinks like I do. Not everybody's mm-hmm. gone through the same kind of develop development process. So I I have uniquely valuable insights about the business world too. And oh yeah, the business world is where the money is. So if I help a company make more money, I make more money. This is awesome. And then that's, that's why I focused on that. All right, guys, let's take a quick second. I want to thank our awesome sponsor for today's show, which is Pack Crest Botanicals. If you listen to episode 55 of this show, then you heard my conversation with Michael Pickens. He is the CEO of Pack Crest Botanicals, which offers the highest quality herbal supplements, natural topicals, and CBD hemp products. They also carry Delta 8 vape cartridges. Now, Delta 8 is fully legal in all 50 states, and unlike regular Delta 9 cannabis, when you take it, you get a nice relaxing body sensation without the anxiety or paranoia you sometimes get with recreational products. With Pack Crest, your medicine gets shipped directly to your home. It comes in a little undisclosed box and ready to go. Pack Crest Botanicals also has full-spectrum tinctures, adaptogen teas, mushroom blends, and even topicals and balms. So go to PackCrestBotanicals.com. The listeners of this program will get a 30% discount on their first order. Just type in the word Invictus at checkout. That's PackCrestBotanicals.com with discount code Invictus for 30% off. They don't skimp on quality because the stuff they sell is the stuff they want to use. Now, let's get back to the show. Now, is there a difference between uh, some of the tactics you use on stage versus uh, what you would in a corporate setting? I mean, obviously, you're using feedback from the audience on, on stage, right? You're, you're using the energy and the uh, the shock value on stage. But uh, I want to kind of get into the nitty gritty about uh, not only that on stage, but how that translates to the corporate world. There is no difference. Okay. And that's the fascinating part about it to me which is magicians have figured this out 10,000 years ago. Think about it. I, I get perfect strangers who I've never met before 
to stand on stage in front of a thousand people. That's terrifying for most people. Mm-hmm. Like just, just the idea a day beforehand, you ask that person, would you ever stand in front of a thousand people? And they'd be like, hell no, never going to do that. And, and then they come see my show and then they're on stage having a blast and then going, this was awesome. I want to come back and do it again. <laughs> That's amazing, right? So how do you do that? It's all based on trust. And my mentor, James Randi, just was perfect at encapsulating it. He goes, listen, we're honest liars. We mm. tell the audience we're going to lie to them, and then we do. That's what makes it ethical. That's the difference between somebody who's willingly – Uh, being a fraud or a fake or a cheat or a scam. So it's the ultra honest forthright nature of what it is you're going to expect that helps people understand and appreciate, okay, I, I can trust this guy because I can ask people for their wedding rings. They'll give it to me. I can ask them, give me, give me a hundred dollars out of your wallet. Then they'll do it. Mm Mm-hmm. It's all because there's the broader context of trust of going, I know this is a show. He's the guy on stage. I'm not. He wouldn't have been booked here if he were genuinely going to rip me off. Sure. So the dynamic tells people that they can trust you. Hmm. It's exactly the same thing in the business context. Your marketing should communicate your value to the right people and attract them and push the wrong people away. Mm -hmm. I don't want children at my shows. Mm -hmm. I'm not a children's entertainer. I'm not, I don't entertain kids. They're bored out of their minds at my show. There aren't bright flashing lights. Mm -hmm. There's no color. It's just a dude talking for an hour. Adults have enough life experience to understand why what I do should not happen. Kids couldn't care less. (laughs) So I need in my marketing to make sure that parents don't think this is a children's magic show. And then there's a whole bunch of five-year-olds screaming and running around. Sure. So my marketing needs to filter out more people than it attracts. Okay. So if your marketing isn't pushing people away, you're not marketing. Mm -hmm. So then your marketing should, it's the beginning of the show. So this is show business and entertainers focus on the show side of things and business people forget the show elements of everyday business. So your marketing is the beginning of the show. It really is. Your show begins the first time they don't even notice your poster. Mm. They, they have to see it several times before they're aware of it the first time. So your marketing filters people out, attracts the right people in. Then the day of the experience, when they walk into the venue, the venue should reflect the nature of the experience. So if you are doing a multi-million dollar deal and you're inviting them to Chuck E. Cheese, that's weird. Mm-hmm. So the, the context, the medium, the place that you're in for the relationship sets the framework for whether they can trust you or not. 
and it should be exactly consistent with the flavor of the conversation that led up to that point. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I like how you said you called yourself an honest liar. And uh, I've been uh, learning a lot about marketing myself. I have a marketing degree in uh, from school, but uh, we know that professional experience always trumps whatever you learn in school. But, yep. you know, so marketing is, is you know, messaging. And, uh, you know, I learn about marketing and branding and things of that nature. But marketing is the business. And a lot of people use this word uh, influence, right, uh, to be an influencer, and, uh, and then you can use the word manipulation, but uh, there's a positive and negative uh, connotation with both words, right? To be an influencer means you're, you're manipulating somebody, but, you know, if you're doing it with that, uh, you know, intention of you're not, you're, you're being honest, even though you're, you're telling them something that they don't know yet that they, they want to know. Yeah, the, the, I, I want to dig into that because I, I have that kind of pinned down to help people navigate. Is this manipulation? Is this influence? The, the bigger picture first is you can't not influence people. You're doing it all day, every day to yourself and others. To prove it, you can just smile at people for no reason all day long. Every single person that you come in contact with, smile at them. Mm-hmm. That's it. And then see how many people smile back. And it's that easy. Then you realize, oh, everything I'm doing is having an effect on everybody, no matter how small, no matter how fleeting that inter- like interchange was, that exchange of, of your moments, it, it has an impact. So to say, I don't wanna influence people, that's like saying, I don't wanna be alive. <laughs> We're all influencing each other all the time. Mm-hmm. It's just that doing it intentionally with awareness of its impact is a better way of doing things rather than refusing to educate yourself on what it is you're doing while alive. So to me, ignorance is not a virtue. Mm. Understand these things, take control of what it is that you're doing to everybody else. And now you're more in control of what you're deciding to do. That to me is a better way to live. I got you. in terms of manipulation and influence and the the negative brush that everybody paints marketing with is, all right, imagine if there's a, a horizontal bandwidth for me, like a, a horizontal spectrum of, am I trying to gain by taking from somebody else without their consent? Right? Like, am I, am I trying to steal from them? Am I trying to benefit at their expense? That would be fraud. Or on the opposite end, am I focused on benefiting as many people in this exchange as possible? Me and them and their customers and clients. So that's the win-win-win situation. Sure. Okay. So now that is the horizontal And then the vertical is, what am I trying to change? Am I trying to change their belief or am I trying to change their behavior? Mm -hmm. Those two things in practice aren't on opposite sides. They're actually a cycle. But for illustration purposes, just let's just say that they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. Sure. So now, if I'm trying to benefit myself at your expense by virtue of affecting your behavior, that's coercion. That's me using a gun to mm-hmm. tell you, give me your money. 
I don't care what you think. I don't care what you believe. I don't care how you feel. All I care about is your behavior that I want to change to my benefit. Right. And using a gun to take your money uh, is called taxes. <laughs> so that's coercion. If I'm trying to change your beliefs to my benefit solely, that's what manipulation is all about because that's usually managing the narrative or withholding facts and information that you would need to make a fully informed decision about whether to continue our relationship. So if I'm withholding relevant information so that you believe something about me that is not true in order for my benefit, that's manipulation. Not cool. That's that's a horrible way to, to go through life. Right. So now on the win-win-win side, if I'm trying to change your behavior, that's influence. So I don't need you to believe that it's the best restaurant in the world. I just need you to go to this restaurant with me because I know both of us will have something there that we'd like. And then once you go there, you have the great experience, then you'll believe, oh yeah, that place was great. If I focus on your beliefs first, that will usually lead to change to behavior. Mm. So focusing on beliefs first is in the long run, the most bang for your buck. That's where persuasion lives. I gotcha. So if I'm focused on helping you reframe your beliefs to your benefit and my benefit and the benefit of everybody that we talk to and relate with throughout the rest of history, that's persuasion. So that's, that's why a lot of marketing is focused on manipulation of withholding relevant information. Whereas to me, the best marketing is massively persuasive to the right people, repulsive to the wrong people, and mm. is very truthful and honest about its focus, its intention, and the essence of, of what it's trying to communicate. Very interesting. So I... Uh you do a lot of corporate events, right? You'll, you'll, uh, maybe you perform it, maybe you just training. I, I'm not sure how that goes down, but uh, as I was reading your bio, I, I, I liked, maybe you can tell us the story of how you got involved in that. Cause I, I remember reading one story about the, the person who uh, was hired as a consultant, but was a comedian and ended up getting punched out by the CEO. <laughs> yes. Yes. So <laughs> I, I think of when, when a client brings me on, they usually, are asking me to help them connect with resources, whether it's helping the company connect with their employees mm -hmm. to show appreciation for their employees. That would be more of an entertainment kind of a thing. Okay. Maybe a conference wants to connect with their attendees more effectively. Well, that could be me being the MC as the face for the whole event and then people have a transfer of, oh, I really liked the MC. I then really liked the conference. Okay. Or the conference schedulers, the people putting the show together, want the audience to connect with the idea behind the conference. Mm. So then that's me as a keynote to come in and develop a, a special hour or 45-minute presentation that will communicate that idea to the audience through experiences that transcend the words. It's more of they had fun and the demonstrations I do prove the points 
in ways that just talking about it can never do. Sure. Or the company wants their salespeople to connect to more opportunity. Hmm. So that's when I'm coming in and doing a two-day workshop for 16 people okay. so that we're doing sales 101. These are the, the kind of green folks and they're not used to sales conversations. So now we've got small groups and we do two days of intensive workshops of uh, giving them assignments. They do it, get immediate feedback. And that's why we keep the groups small. So that's the training side of things. And gotcha. those training workshops are focused on sales, advanced sales, then negotiation skills, presentation skills, which are useful even for teams that never are outward facing. So mm. sales dudes, they're, they're talking to people all day long, every day. Uh, everybody in the sales team is outward facing. Research and development rarely talks to the outside world. Right. However, the engineering mindset can have difficulty communicating the value of the discovery outside the bounds of the, the technical terms or the lexicon of their area of specialty. So somebody could discover something that could make the, the company millions of dollars or save the company millions of dollars and then not be able to explain why or how to management. So mm. now the company is hurt because the people who have helped the company can't sell their idea up sure. the chain of command. Sure. So good presentation skills, even if you're just talking about last week's KPIs, you might be able to say what the numbers are, but not do it in a way that helps the stakeholders appreciate that this is a good thing. Right. So those presentation skills are useful for entrepreneurs, for stakeholders, for boardrooms, CEOs, everybody. And then the fourth one is influence. Telling a, telling a story. People remember stories more than they remember facts and figures. Right, right. And there's there's structure to both of those, which is if you're like, what's your goal? What's your reason for presenting? Is it to deliver information and to be informative so that your audience knows something afterwards that they didn't know beforehand? Mm -hmm. Well, why would that be any better than just giving them a report? So if your goal is to inform, you need to do it in a way that engages the audience, maintains their attention, and delivers that information in ways that they can appreciate. Or you want the presentation to be influence-based. You want them to take action. You want them to do something at the end of your presentation. Well, that's a totally different structure. They're they're related, but man, those are those are separate focuses. And storytelling is the way that you deliver both of those. Because what one of my one of my friends, Charles Faulkner, uh, put it perfectly. He said, "Stories are human beings' original information storage and retrieval devices. Hmm. That's where we put our values. That's where we put our principles. That's where we put." Everything is in our stories. So the better you get at telling stories, the more effective you'll be as an educator, as an influencer, as a marketer, as an engineer across the board. Being a better storyteller is communication. 
So that's that's why to me, branding isn't you telling your story. It's helping your customers tell your story while you're not around mm. by giving them the right words to say. Okay. So that's that's kind of how branding is telling your story to yourself first, then focusing on how you can help your customers tell it for you. Then that informs the marketing, that informs delivery, that informs client retention. Your story is at the core of all, all value that you're delivering, that you're exchanging it for. It's all just narrative, all of it. Yeah, I, I remember some of the best speakers I've seen in uh, corporate events, the ones who can really uh, bring out the emotions, like they'll make you laugh, they'll make you cry, they'll make you, you know, uh, think, you'll, they'll make you scared even. And, and I think that those uh, having that skill set is just remarkable. So, Right. And, and that's, that's the trick is to help your audience have so much fun that they don't even realize that they're learning or, or remembering stuff. So the experience should be designed to be directly enjoyable, memorable, meaningful. And the messaging is kind of the internal DNA inside of all of that, okay. that people aren't even noticing as it's happening. <laughs> right. So that's really interesting stuff. I mean, in this world of COVID, right, everything made a transition. You know, I, I remember seeing corporate events and, and just seeing uh, speakers and just really being engaged. But uh, as a podcaster, of course, you and I are talking on Zoom. And that's, that seems how everything is going on today. I, I just don't think that the same energy is, is able to be transferred. What, what do you think? You think you can transfer the same energy over the computer versus being in person? It's never the same energy. It's different, okay. but not better or worse. Okay. For the past year, I've talked with about three to five business owners a day for the past year, and a ever-increasing percentage of them are coming from manufacturing, from uh, business to business, mm -hmm. from uh, trade shows. Like That's another huge one of my verticals, is okay. being the guy in the booth, attracting a crowd, entertaining them while at the same time secretly delivering the the sales messaging sure. so that the right people are pre-qualified then hand them off to the sales team mm -hmm. all of that to say so many businesses and industries that for the past ever have relied on handshake word of mouth and in-person experiences and referrals mm -hmm. to generate business the past year forced them into a digital context. So since the mid nineties, when the internet first hit the blip big, like on a noticeable scale, the people who were hip to the internet first have been there the longest, have mm -hmm. been able to benefit from it the most and been fabulously effective and successful. So we, the internet, I, I like to say that Gutenberg completely revolutionized information flow. Mm -hmm. Literacy went up because books were more available. It right. wasn't that, that literacy went up and then books came around because more people could read them. No, okay. it's, it's exactly backwards. A whole bunch more books were available. Now people have a excuse to re learn to read. Sure. The internet 
makes Gutenberg's printing press look like chump change hmm. in terms of information available and the ability to connect with an audience at a global scale. Sure. Like, it's it's stunning what a cell phone can do for a business. Mm -hmm. So now your seize the means of production, you've got one in your pocket, right? Like there are people making a, an entire living just with their cell phone and ideas. Absolutely. So the people who've been able to recognize the power of that early were very well prepared for 2020. Few people have learned to uncouple their value from their effort. Hmm. So they think going out and breaking rocks is the only honest day's work. Hmm. So I got to work hard to get paid. It's mm -hmm. like, no, you got to create value, mm -hmm. which may be super easy for you. So the effort angle isn't directly tied to the results anymore. Okay. Because technology helps you leverage it, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. So now all these, all these companies have been able to ignore the digital revolution because I deal with salt of the earth folks, the, my, my customers and clients, we've known each other for 50 years. They're non-technical either. Like we understand handwritten is better than digital because we just can't trust digital. So since the nineties, those manufacturing companies and verticals have been able to ignore the power of the internet. They might have a placeholder website, but it was made in 97 and hasn't been updated since then. Sure. And then 2020 happens. And now they can't make the old way work anymore. Mm. And now they're faced with, oh, you need to do 20 years worth of adapting in, oh yeah, the clock is already ticking because right. you're done. So the energy of exchanging through Zoom and online is completely foreign to a lot of verticals. Mm -hmm. So you're never going to have that same energy, but there are better ways to make use of it and worse ways to make use of it. So in, in my own personal context, I had a lot of experience of being on television, of going out for news programs at, at five o'clock in the morning and I'm a creature of the night. So I'm all basically hung over. It's like, oh, it's way too early for me. Right. And then that weird dynamic of staring at an unblinking eye and learning how to connect with the camera because that's how you connect with the audience. Mm -hmm. The more familiar you are with that, the easier time you have appearing natural in an extraordinarily unnatural situation. Sure. This is not natural. It is, it is weird having lights and a camera and monitors right here and a keyboard. Like, it's weird, man, but it's a skill. So helping, helping these companies appreciate the value of paid advertising, of building a good relationship with Google, that's SEO, of being able to tell their story on social media to put their, their value proposition in front of the right people to drive traffic to their website which should be a conversion tool. It is not an information brochure. It is a proactive sales tool that will advance them to the next stage of building trust, right? Yeah. So okay. then, so all my in-person work in March evaporated of 2020. Mm. All my trade shows, mm. all my keynotes, all my training, everything evaporated. And I was butthurt about it for a couple of weeks and uh, I saw a lot of entertainers 
sharing video of their live performances as a way of saying, hey, guys, distract yourself for a while. Here's here's our way of helping. But sure. it's kind of like watching video of of somebody else's kids recital. You're like, I have zero mm. investment to this. This is in no way interesting. I, it was just not good. So based off that, I was like, I'm not going to do this online thing. Like, it's not the same I'm best in person. It's just Mm -hmm. not going to be worth it. And then my agent was saying, oh, hey, uh, I booked you a couple shows. Uh, If you can if you can do it online, this would be perfect. I was like, all right, I'll figure this out. Well, now Mm -hmm. there are some really, really cool virtues to doing shows online, because now it's like every single person on the call has a front row seat where they're sitting right across the table from me. So now there's an approachability that there wasn't there beforehand. Mm. So on stage, which is usually in a physical context, the only way that you can appear in front of a thousand or 3000 people, if everybody crowded around the table, well, there might be 20 people who can see maybe 40 people behind them and then everybody else, well, you're just out of luck. But now with the camera, dude, I don't care how many people's on the call. Everybody can see me big, can see my hands in HD, see what's going on. And now I don't need to travel. I can have a global audience to pull from. It's it's awesome. So in some ways, it's better to be more familiar with, with video. So now that that the online dynamic is more familiar to more people, it's now more viable as a distribution channel so that when things get back to normal, which they're never going to get back to normal, this just adapt or don't, right? So moving forward as in-person events come back online, there's going to be a massive push for that because it's kind of like, oh, finally, we're, we're back to, oh, so happy. But the virtual experience dynamic, I don't think, is going to go away. It's now just going to be more and more integrated into multi-dimensional experience. Sure, sure. One of my mentors, uh, you you brought up uh, the difference between seeing somebody face to face, like in a front row versus a back row. One of my mentors always said that uh, we have to push for the front at these uh, at these you know conventions and stuff like that because it's a different experience. Because now you feel like you have that interaction, you have that direct eye contact with the presenter, and you have uh, you know maybe you're less distracted. I, I don't know about the distraction factor online because you know there's plenty of things I can do to be distracted while I'm having a conversation like this uh, online. But it is that that close uh, interaction one on one, even though you're not physically there, but you definitely looking at each other face to face. Every individual, right. I think it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was always a part of the pre-show experience for me is watching groups come into the room and they might be early and then they sit in the back and I'm like, okay, they might need to leave early. I also know that they're specifically wanting to not be involved because due to the nature of physics, space and time are inseparable. If I pick somebody very far in the back, it's going to take a lot of time for them to stand up in the middle of an aisle, scooch their way past 30 people, then walk the hundred feet up to the stage, then up the stairs. That's a lot of dead time. So I'm not going to pick people from the back. I'm going to pick people who are near the aisle, 
near the front who are actively engaged in paying attention. I want to reward those people by having a fantastic experience. So it's it's kind of the same thing in the virtual way. Yeah, you could be distracted by email or your phone. So I'm not going to pick somebody who's not watching. I'm also going right. to ask everybody in the room or the, the Zoom room to use their cell phones in demonstrations. So now they can't be using their phone for something else because I'm having them use them to serve okay. the focus of the experience. So now, like, yeah, I want you on your phone for me. Mm. <laughs> so now they're less likely to be distracted by their phone because using their phone is to pay attention. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's, it's interesting how you were able to pivot what you've done uh, just out of necessity because of, you know, like you said, the, the, this, this word, the new normal, I, I can't stand that word, but it is, it's adapt or die. You know, this is technology the way it is and uh, you know, we just have to deal with it. Right. It's, it's the as it is-ness that you have to appreciate because you could not want it. You could say it's unnatural. You could say it shouldn't be that way. None of that has zero effect on what it is. So you need to recognize what is before you can have any chance of affecting what it can be. So right. people go, well, I'm just going to behave as though things were different. Like, well, good luck being incompetent because that's not a winning strategy. Mm -hmm. You mentioned on, on your website that, that everything that we've known uh, within the last 50 years has ever been written is wrong. Everything that's written about influence and marketing and psychology is, is actually wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's most of what we know from psychology research is based off of a handful of studies and who's, who's the guinea pig for most psychology research, college kids, freshmen sure. that need an extra five bucks, right? Mm -hmm. It's been a while since I've been a college freshman. Even when I was a college freshman, I wouldn't say that that was a representative cross cross section of my way of seeing the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the replication crisis of a lot of psychology research about, oh, so these seeming bedrock studies, these landmark discoveries about human psychology. Well, you do those same studies again and you're not getting the same results. That would be like, like gravity's acceleration isn't 9.8 meters per second per second. That that's weird. So you hmm. want universal principles that apply everywhere all the time. That's why they're universal, not, oh, in the seventies, right. this was the way things were. So most of the psychology research is based on that kind of foundation, which is to say not much. So even if, even if we put on the table, okay, let's say it's, it is all bedrock and solid. Well, when did psychology research begin? Maybe 100 years ago, 150 years ago, if we want to be generous with it. The, the scientific right. study of human perception and, and interacting with, with reality. Okay, mm -hmm. 150 years. How long have magicians been around? Since day one. Since before <laughs> history. 
since before spoken history. Somebody said, hey, look Mm -hmm. over there. And there was nothing to look at. Right. That. okay, that's the beginning of magic. Magic tricks work no matter where you grew up. I don't care. That is operating at a fundamental human perception level that hacks Mm. the software of the human interface. That is fundamental human psychology and motivation in understanding how people perceive reality to build their framework for predicting what's going to happen next. So magicians have been hacking that process since day one. Who has more experience then? 150 years of people in laboratories testing college freshmen or magicians that have been around since before time and been able to do what it is they say they can do. One of those two groups understands fundamental human psychology more effectively. And it's in my book, not the researchers. Mm. Yeah. I really like the study of psychology because, uh, you know, people, uh, people don't understand that decisions are are mainly from uh, the the study of psychology. You can, you know, going back to influence and things of that nature, you, you can really learn, um, how we make decisions. I mean, sometimes we can't understand why people make decisions, but you can kind of understand how they make decisions based on learning that kind of stuff. Right. And, and there's a super freaky thing in that your body makes your choice for you, tells you what you're about to do. Then your mind says, I came up with that. Mm. It's, it's a super weird thing that seems completely foreign And it comes up all the time in martial arts. Okay. If you can feel the other person's intention, you can address it before it happens. Hmm. So there's a, 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 it's a skill set. It's a laboratory experiment called Chi Sao, which is most familiar to the Kung Fu world and the flavor of Kung Fu known as Wing Chun which I find endlessly fascinating and I practice it every day. So Chi Sao loosely translated means sticky hands or listening hands. The idea is that you get connected to your partner, your opponent or whatever, and you really dial into your proprioceptive awareness of your body in space. Hmm. The contact point between you and the other person, say your forearms are touching. It's just like ballroom dancing. You can feel where your partner is going before you would be able to see where they're going. Because if you're looking at their feet to dance, you're too late, right? Right, okay. So your sense of touch is way more ancient than your sense of vision. And vision is Mm. super processor heavy So it actually takes a little bit longer to process what you're seeing than what you're touching, but that would put your senses out of phase and that'd be very disorienting. So your mind delays sense of touch a little bit to be in phase with vision so that you have a coherent perception of reality. So if you can then dial into just that 300 milliseconds early of feeling what your opponent is doing, you've got a 300 millisecond lead on being able to address what they're doing. The weirder thing is people who are unfamiliar with what that dynamic is 
aren't even aware of what it is they're trying to do to you before they're doing it. So their body's mm. going to try something before they're ever even consciously aware of, oh, I'm going to punch him with my right hand. But you can feel mm. that intention through that connection before your opponent even knows what they're about to do to you. So on the receiving end of that process, it is freaky feeling because no matter what you do, your opponent isn't where they should be. Like, I can't get a hold of you. What are you doing? <laughs> it feels like magic, right? Mm -hmm. And it's because the body informs the mind of what's about to happen. Your mind likes to feel like it's in control. So you, it, your mind tells you that it's in control, but your body will, will fire before the mind does. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was just, uh, I was learning a little bit about the uh, subconscious and conscious decision-making and uh, you know, what you tell me with with your body. I've, I've actually heard uh, some people speak about that. Uh, even like the processes that we go through on a regular basis, just to find food or to defend themselves from an enemy or anything like that. Now uh, you've written a book on, uh, on your study of Kung Fu, right? The, the Wayne Chung. Yeah. Psychic yeah. Called life psychics. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Life, life physics. Life physics. Yep. The psychics is the other okay. side of my business. <laughs> That's the mind reading stuff. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that that was kind of my approach was, oh, you like the mind stuff first? All right, read my book, think like a mind reader. Oh, you prefer a more physical approach? All right, read my book about Kung Fu. They're both pointing at the same thing just from two different starting points. Right. Well, to be able to control our mind and our body, you know, will help us in the long run. Anyway. Exactly. You're you're mostly at the mercy of your neuromuscular patterns and and their literal patterns, too, because when you first are developing a skill, you have your neurons to your nervous system that innervates into your muscles. All right. Mm -hmm. You first try your motor muscle skills. And there's a lot of neurons firing that aren't essential because you're trying a lot of stuff out. The pathways that are essential start to feel right. So then those are the ones that get the myelin sheathing to insulate, mm. to reduce the amount of signal that's lost by firing the nerves that aren't required. So people say it's muscle memory but your muscles don't remember anything. It's the myelin sheath creation of the appropriate pathways that mean it takes less impulse to propagate through the muscle patterns to activate that gross motor skill. Mm. That's okay. why training is slowly doing those muscle patterns to then reinforce that pattern when you're not thinking about it so that it's an automatic instinct. Exactly. Right? So, just... so it's, it becomes instinct. It becomes second nature. It becomes the thing you do because you're consciously programming that pattern into your neuromuscular system. And that only happens through repetition over time and maintaining those pathways. So it's not magic. It's not instinct. It's not, uh, it's not muscle memory. It is consciously slowing down to encode certain patterns of behavior into mm. your nature. Seems like a very useful skill for success in uh, in, in the business world and anywhere else. <laughs> right. So that's that's why I had such a 
passion to get into the coaching and business world because I just saw so many people saying, oh, you just wish it into existence. Oh, you just manifest it into existence. Oh, you just put it out into the universe and it'll come back to you. Like, no, <laughs> this is this is basic life physics. There are okay. there's cause and effect. And the strategies that you come up with are based off of your perception of the fundamentals of reality. So if your fundamentals are busted, your strategies are going to be busted. And then mm. you blame your clients. You're like, oh, it didn't work because you didn't try hard enough. Right. So now right. now you're blaming them for not succeeding because mm. you're telling them to wish for it. And then it doesn't happen. And then you're saying, oh, you didn't wish for it hard enough. Oh, you, you, you're not pure of heart enough. Oh, you're all these ways to blame the victim of believing in your bunko weirdo made up strategies for success. It eats me up inside, just drives me nuts. So that's, that's why I'm, I'm on a holy campaign to teach people Kung Fu. <laughs> nice. It's not the secret of the universe, you know, it's, uh, it's just the studying the, the secret is learning and studying and developing those skills that'll help you understand uh, the basis of psychology and physics and everything else. Right. So. Like people think magicians are guarding secrets. We're not. Like you can buy a book and read it and then voila, mm -hmm. there you go. So magicians look like they can do impossible things, but they're actually possible because you're seeing it happen. The only way that magicians can do things that look impossible is by understanding the fundamentals better than you do about how perception works, how decision-making works, how influence works. That's the only way this stuff works. So everybody says, oh, success works like magic. Well, I'm an authority on what magic is, and I can tell you it works exactly like magic because it takes years of study, years of practice, skill development, refinement, timing. Like, it's hard. It is hard work making the impossible sure. look like it is effortless. And, and there's a word for that. It's called sprezzatura, one of my favorite words on planet Earth. Sprezzatura, which is the studied, apparent, casual nature of doing something that's extraordinarily difficult. So I, uh, I remember one time I was doing a film project for a local magician, and uh, he uh, he had me film his show. And you know, I, I thought I had the benefit of actually being able to see how he did his tricks, you know, because I wouldn't have that, that distraction factor. And as I was zooming in on the camera, he was doing the levitating bottle trick. And I was like panning in and I'm like, well, how the heck is he making this bottle levitate? I could not figure it out at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's got to be some kind of physical property there that I must have missed. Right. But. Right. And, and a big part of that is, man, it, it's really tough to find somebody who can film a good magic show. It, it's it's extraordinarily difficult for exactly that reason, because you're you, the filmographer are engaged in the narrative experience of the show, mm -hmm. which is not the same as framing it properly for the second level, which is the video for the website, okay. right? Because you as a human sure. get sucked into the magic experience instead of being able to stay disconnected from the, okay, what's the best way to make, make this guy look great? <laughs> it's, it's, oh man, it's such a pitfall. So difficult. So right, yeah, right. yeah.
Well, Jonathan, I really thank you for your uh, your explanation of uh, you know psychology and, and magic and everything like that. Uh, I'm going to have to check out some of your uh, your work online and elsewhere. Why don't you let everyone know where they can find you and learn more about you and, and whatever else you want to plug? Let's see. The best place to go is jonathanpritchard.me. That's my hub for all the million irons I have in a bazillion fires. So that's the best place to go where you can branch out. Um, on the books side, Think Like a Mind Reader is the most popular one. Uh, it's the easiest one to get into for understanding memory, motivation, psychology of, of connections and, and that kind of thing. If the Kung Fu angle is appealing to you, uh, you can find that on that site too. Uh, social media, I'm most, pop, like, I'm most active on Twitter. Um, anywhere else, I'm basically just camped, but Twitter really appeals to me because it's ideas focused. So if, if you're on okay. Twitter, come find me there. Um, and my username changes every once in a while, but uh, I've been using Minderfolden for quite a while. So that'll probably stick around. But again, that's that's on the website and best place to connect. All right. Well, Jonathan, you're a man of many talents and I appreciate this conversation. You know, have a great day. Thank you much. Okay. So that was my interview with Jonathan Pritchard. Now, I know some of you are asking why I didn't ask him to perform a magic trick on the show. Well, we can leave that until next time. I really wanted to understand the psychology behind his craft and how it helps us to improve our own communication skills. I think he explained perfectly how 10,000 years of studying human perception and behaviorism makes these types of entertainers so much more informed than the modern psychologists of today. And with a correct understanding of human nature, one can increase his influence to gain more value in order to share more value with others. And in the end, that will make everyone's life better. I want to thank Jonathan for his time and thank the listeners. Don't forget you can find these episodes on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the other players that you use. You can subscribe to this show, and if you wish to learn more, just text the word Invictus to 33777, and I'll set you up with the Invictus newsletter. For now, I'll leave you all with this thought. You heard in the show that Jonathan and I were talking about changes that have become this new world. Now, change isn't a bad thing, but if you're not able to adapt, then you will struggle in the years ahead. My challenge to everyone is to go out and learn a new skill. It doesn't have to be in just this week, but over the course of the next couple months, look into doing something you've never done before, something you were too scared to try, or something that you put off because life just got in the way. I believe that each one of us has a unique gift or talent that if the world was made known of these things, Life would change in dramatic ways that are both unimaginable and awesome. So go ahead and keep on growing, keep learning, become Invictus, and most of all, be free. See you next week.